Welcome to Matters of Experience, a podcast that explores the creativity, innovation and psychology driving designed experiences and encounters. Welcome back, all our regular listeners. Thanks for being here with us today. And if you're new and enjoy today's show, please subscribe. My name is Abigail Honor. Hello, I'm Brenda Cowan. So today we're talking with Terry Snowball. Terry is the museum specialist in the collections management department at the Smithsonian Institution, where he's worked for over 26 years. A graduate of the Institute of American Indian Arts, Terry has used his experience to help guide SI in their pursuit of Native American historical justice. Terry, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here virtually, and um, I look forward to sharing uh, my experiences and uh, insights in terms of uh, what I do here at the NMAI. To kick off, tell us uh, sort of about the work you do with collections. Normally, when you go to a, a museum anywhere, a small percentage of the collections are actually uh, on display. The full balance of that is going to be in a storage facility and or uh, kept in storage on-site or off-site at the museum. Where I work here in the Cultural Resources Center in Suitland, Maryland, uh, we're home to over 850,000 plus objects from the entire indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere. And so there's a lot entailed in terms of uh, both uh, caring and preserving, also making upgrades uh, in terms of their care. Terry, the repatriation of objects, this is an increasing area of focus in the museum world, I would say very long overdue, and it's very complex and sensitive work. Terry, you used to work with the repatriation of Native objects. Can you share with the listeners what that would entail? Um, Sure. One of the things that sort of happened uh, very important and or significantly in terms of uh, the types of objects and or the importance of the objects, not only to museums and to the public, but also to the communities themselves, the tribes, their objects and or their ritual practices were both outlawed and or taken away. And so repatriation happened along with the passing of the National Museum of the American Indian Act to allow for tribes to come to the Smithsonian and primarily work with the National Museum of Natural History, which has Native American collections of human remains and cultural objects, and as well as the National Museum of American Indians. And so in that, there are five main categories that basically affect the collections and or the means by which tribes can make claim for objects. The first, of course, being human remains that would have been collected and or excavated from different sites, uh, funerary objects, and then, of course, objects that were once previously considered communally owned, uh, which are also considered objects of cultural patrimony, which means no one individual in a, in a tribe or community can alienate that uh, object or uh, items from their community. And then lastly, uh, sacred objects, which are, uh, of course, you know, as, as the term implies, uh, used in, in very uh, important and significant ways in, in the practice of the traditions. What sort of conflict then in your business as you're trying to do the right thing and repatriate these objects, what what are some of the trouble that it causes or the, the conflicting opinions or perspectives or groups that you encounter and how do you deal with it? Well, that's a good question because it is very complicated in that sense. And one of the things from the outset in terms of uh, the legislation, and, and I should mention that in uh, while the NMAI Act established the Museum of the American Indian, National Museum of the American Indian with the Smithsonian, which now includes 19 uh, museums and a zoo, it also, in that sense, 
you know, sort of presented the challenge in terms of the how you interpret the law, I guess you could say. So there are basically two forms of interpretation, I guess like one could refer to, and that's there's a term or a standard which is called preponderance of evidence. And so a preponderance of, of evidence is a higher standard. Uh, say as as opposed to what the enemy eye is, is which is a reasonable basis. So the higher the standard, I think in that sense, the, it's harder uh, to to find agreement in terms of the type of information or, or record that is that is used or utilized. You know, sort of oral accounts in terms of its histories that may be not admissible or permissive or even sort of given the same uh, equity as say an ethnographer, an archaeologist, or an anthropologist who's you know, who's esteemed or has expertise in that sense or, you know, from the standpoint of institutional standard. I'm going to um, broaden their focus for a second and share with you that I just got back the other day from a special seminar that was focusing on the work of collections in state and local history museums. And I was in a boardroom with a dozen uh, historians who were really deeply engaged in a really concerning conversation over the nature of collecting in various historical institutions. And really this whole idea that there's a problem with an almost hoarding-like mentality on behalf of historical collections institutions. And the efforts to de-access and the efforts to repatriate where appropriate are deeply flawed or challenged. And I'm really curious, in terms of the way in which you're working with collections now, kind of across the board at NMAI, what are some of the current efforts that you're engaged with? You know, are you having to do particularly difficult work or decision-making because of the, you know, incredible size of your collection? Or what are you finding in your daily work? Well, I think the challenge to to most anything in that sense is is sort of the decline of you know sort of the cultural stamina you know in terms of uh, communities and groups where in that sense that stamina is based on just how how rich their culture is what is still retained languages are constantly sort of in the threat of completely disappearing so I, I think in that sense, the challenge with most collections is, is to uh, work uh, with the vestiges of those and trying to enrich or replenish that information that's critical to an object. So that is a challenge from the standpoint of having so much cultural material, but also sort of not really being capable of having that type of expertise available to you. So we have to work with communities from that standpoint to help us enrich these collections to sort of valorize the meaning or context of these objects. So you're really collecting towards the mission of the institution, and it sounds like you're really collecting towards telling the narrative, telling the story. Yes, very much so, because that's part of our mission is to work with community. And one of the things that I think is really important for the NMAI is that, you know, we're, we're kind of a living museum. We consider us a cultural institution. And so our mission is to work with communities. So in that sense, the things that we want to collect or to actively look for is not something from the past, uh, because there's there's a lot of that here. And like I said uh, just before, you know, it's important to enrich that. But the other part of it is that it's very important to 
collect things correctly and appropriately in the sense of that we're collecting contemporary things by uh, any number of artists that are both working traditionally and or in the modern art. Terry, here you are collecting wonderfully for the future from what's currently contemporary and you feel needs to be preserved. What you collect now will quickly become the past. If every collection is only at any one moment displaying 2 to 5%, isn't it safe to say that a lot of what you're collecting is sits collecting dust and it's not important if nobody ever sees it? And if you continue to keep collecting, even if it's on mission and it goes in a warehouse and nobody's seeing it, then there's something something vain about us all collecting things that we think are important and then putting them away and not showing them. So is there any importance in constantly reviewing the collection you've attained and maybe sifting through and removing from that huge collection some things that have proved to not be of any interest to our communities over the last decade or century or half century, however long a museum's there, because just sitting there. So it's like fine for everybody to say, we paid a ton of money. It's really important. Important for what? Sit in a corner in a box. I think the question is is not always the easiest one to answer in terms of how to sort of qualitatively or even quantitatively assess, you know, the, the spectrum of this material culture to say, what you know? What can be best done with this kind of material, and/or uh, even individuals per se, to to sort of say how we can interpret them in the future? And um, I should say that while we're also uh, open to and/or uh, giving access to Native peoples, uh, the collection is also being accessed by researchers who, in a particular way, are uh, are similarly more. Uh, at large in terms of developing and or refining information about larger or or, uh, collections at large that are similar in those ways. And so there are things that kind of come in and or there are trajectories that do take place in terms of saying that it's giving resource to things. But, you know, that's an important thing from that standpoint, which I think one of the overtures that the Smithsonian is is making and or has made is that it is interested in pursuing the route in terms of ethical return of objects and or things that uh, have greater significant cultural importance to people and communities. And so that's similarly going along those lines in terms of human remains. So there's a developing directive in terms of how that becomes a, a guiding policy for uh, our institutions that are affected in terms of needing to be open to and or receive solicitations from people, individuals, or countries even to request the return of human remains and or significant cultural objects. And uh, as of note recently, too, our, our National Museum of African American has returned the Benin bronzes in its collection. And those are significant overtures from the standpoint of global impacts to say that we're doing some of the right things with some of this important material. I'm going to ask a question about the evocative nature of objects. And we know that objects can be very powerful in very numinous ways. They're sources of inspiration and illumination, and people can have very transformative experiences sometimes with evocative objects. Now, I know that you have had some transformative moments with collections objects, and Abby and I are hoping that you can maybe share a story with us. 
Sure. We've been, uh, since the pandemic has sort of uh, eased off on things, we are receiving many more community people. And so about a month or so ago, we received a delegation of people from uh, communities in Nunavut, which is in the Arctic ranges up north through the Arctic Studies Program. And so they were housed at our facility in terms of working with those community members to provide access to some of the cultural materials that we had here. And uh, there was a Nunavut elder that was accompanying them. And uh, one of the things that are standard in terms of how we host and accommodate our community people is we have a ceremonial room that's built into the facility that gets used by parties in terms of purification or cleansing prior to and after they come in and out of the collections, as well as forms of ceremonial treatment that might take place in that process. And so this particular uh, elder uh, we were going to uh, escort down to a ceremonial room, and so I, uh, we asked the question of what type of ceremony was that go- was it going to be entailed. People said that she was wanting to light this oil lamp, which oil lamps for the Nunavut has been used for millennia, where that's basically lit and heated the homes in, in the Arctic. Uh, as you can imagine, it's very cold. So in that moment, I kind of just took a risk in saying, that the objects that were held in a particular workroom could have benefited by having that uh, ceremony or that uh, imparting of the divine to take place right in the room with these objects. And so uh, we all changed course and um, the lady proceeded to light the lamp. Uh, There were a couple of uh, moments where we were holding our breath, hoping the uh, sensors wouldn't go off because of the smoke, but it was very minimal. But I think the transformative thing was in that sense is that we turned off all the lights that we could. And in that moment, it uh, was sort of uh, saying words or making maybe making prayer, invoking the divine. And these objects were sitting there in the dark with this lamp. And I think days of old, they could have been in those moments in those homes with these people feeling that light again. And I thought that was a very powerful thing for this to happen for her and or for these objects. That is stunning. Yeah. And I love the the visual of this mundane storeroom, essentially, being lit by something and being involved in such an ancient moment. Uh, and it just, it just seems so completely appropriate in mm-hmm. so many ways. Can you talk about what part of your job satisfies you and how you see yourself in your work? Well, when I first started as an intern up in New York uh, at the research branch of the National Museum of American Indian, uh, that was an early moment, early time for repatriation. And I should say that upon reflection, I think one of the important things that repatriation legislation and or you know, those mandates did in terms of necessitating that museums and institutions and agencies work with tribes is that there were probably rare or fewer moments in the sense where museums would conduct themselves in that way to sort of customarily work with Native peoples. And so, in that sense, that form of engagement that took place, because in earlier times, too, tribes would literally come to museums, they actually came to the NMAI, and in those instances would ask for things that were on display and, um, you know, of course, be declined and turned away or discouraged from coming back. And so, you know, in that sense, it's important for me from that standpoint to sort of 
you know, help uh, with the civil exchange that takes place from that standpoint. We were fortunate enough to create an exhibition. It was supposed to be a temporary exhibition, but it was such a hit, it's still touring. Um, up in the Northern Arctic with the Nenets up there. And we were very apprehensive because we were making this exhibition for the local community, for the Nenets. And we felt uh, very much ducks out of water. So um, we did exactly what you what you're discussing, we made it with them. So we went right in, into the community, talked to them about everything, all walks of life. And they were with us every step of the way because we realised that the subtle nuances, even between the different tribes up there, were sometimes barely perceptible for our eyes. I was like, really, this is different? But to them, it's like, you know, left and right. So we needed them to guide us and help us with all of the content we were making. And at the end of it, one of the most amazing moments in my life so far is when it opened and uh, we stood there apprehensively showing them what we'd created. And at the end of taking them around, they came over and said to us, thank you so much for representing our life with integrity. And also we'd sort of given it a different perspective so that they could then reflect on who they were. It was an incredible moment and one of the highlights of my career to create that and then have it be so successful that they wanted to tour it so um, everybody could see it up there in the Arctic and the different groups could, could enjoy it as well was, was kind of phenomenal. You know, one of the things that's important from that standpoint is trust. And that's the ultimate benefit in terms of working collaboratively with something and someone is that you actually learn something more about a situation or about a thing in terms of its true context. And, um, you know, I mean, I guess that's the distrust that we I had uh, spoken of earlier in terms of repatriation is there was a lot of distrust because there's just a history and, and or a legacy that is brought from the standpoint of uh, how many times the Native people have stood before non-Native and had promises made to them. And of course, all those things sort of as expected or anticipated, never made sort of uh, came to fruition for Native peoples. You know, I'm listening and I'm thinking about a colleague of mine who was a curator in Western Australia for many years for a national museum there. And he, you know, was in his 20s and just starting out in the museum world. And his job was to, quote, collect Indigenous objects. And over many, many years, he collected the upwards of 4,000 stone tools. Now, 40-plus years later, he has been fighting and fighting and fighting to try to repatriate. And he's no longer with the institution, and he has these profound feelings of guilt and shame and conflict, inner conflict that he's been struggling with. And during COVID, he actually got special permission to be able to go visit the collections storeroom where all of these 4,000 stone tools are. And he went there to have a personal, kind of a personal ceremony, a ritual period of time where he took out these thousands of stone tools and apologized and asked their forgiveness. Well, you know, I mean, maybe in the course of those collectings, he thought he was doing a, a good thing. Mm -hmm. and, and in some respects, it, it could have been, but in other respects, it could equally sort of contradicted and or defied, you know, so maybe the order or the ways in which uh, Aboriginal people 
would have preferred to have things left in, in state. And, you know, everything has some form of energy. And sure, I think, you know, I think that's that's sort of maybe a, a way to sort of uh, acknowledge and or maybe make peace with that and making those apologies. One of the things my mother taught me was uh, was a prayer that I, I use on occasion to ask um, for forgiveness in touching and taking care of these things. Terry, what would you want visitors at NMAI today to walk away with as a result of their encounters with the collections? Uh, one of the things that I think a lot of people believe or even unaware of that Native people are still alive or are still thriving. So much of the culture that is taught in mainstream is such that it either also has um, minimized or reduced us to sort of caricature status or state. Uh, so there are things in which we, we do look at at the museum and or uh, wish to share with peoples uh, about who we are and our past. I think what a lot of people assume a National Museum of American Indian is, is, is about beads and feathers, and we're not. We're so much more. And so uh, I think Hollywood is probably, uh, has, has given the greatest disservice to identities because of what they did and how we were portrayed. They wanted our romanticism, but they didn't want us. Um, so, you know, there, there were these embellishments to these narratives that you know, sort of remain as sort of uh, not a stigma, but just sort of a, an alter sort of alter ego or alter identity to, to who we really are. I'm so happy you mentioned Hollywood, Terry, because that's what was springing to mind. Which books should our listeners read to get a more realistic account? And also, is there any film where you feel a tribe or tribes are depicted uh, correctly? Well, that's tricky, I think, from that standpoint. But I, there was a gentleman who was First Nations from Canada who sort of documented his travels and, and uh, journey to Hollywood to find the, you know, the Indian. <laughs> and it made these various sort of uh, journeys to places and things where, where those interpretations of, of, of Native people and or even people assuming those identities. The documentary is called Real Engines. And real spelled R-E-E-L and engines, of course, is uh, somewhat of a derogatory uh, term to say engines, I-N-J-U-N. Another book is um, by uh, D. Brown, which is uh, a book called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. And so it documents the account of the systematic destruction of American Indians. Uh, but also there is... Um, Another gentleman, his name is Fine Deloria Jr., and he was, uh, I think, from Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. And uh, one of the books that he was known for was his book called Custer Died for Your Sins, an Indian Manifesto. And uh, that gave him a national attention to Native American issues in the same year as the Alcatraz uh, takeover during the Red Power Movement in the 70s, 60s, uh, with the American Indian Movement. Thank you so much, Terry, for sharing your experience and perspective with us today. It's been enlightening chatting with you, and I feel like we can all sleep a little sounder <laughs> knowing you're one of the va valued custodians of our shared past, present, and future. It's, it's been a pleasure, but I think it's been too short a time because there's so many stories and so many so places many. we can go. 
And thanks to everyone who tuned in today. If you like what you heard, please subscribe for more entertaining episodes of Matters of Experience. Make sure to leave a rating and a review and share with a friend. See you next time. Bye-bye. Matters of Experience is produced by Lorem Ipsum Corp and recorded at Hangar Studios. Tune in next time for more fun discussions about experience design.